welcome you again to New Hope Fellowship. Um, next week, uh, we're going to start a joint series between Jeremy and myself on the gospel. But before we do that, um, we have one sermon uh, free. And as we were kind of discussing what we we're going to do with that sermon, one of the last series that I intended to do before I le- left here was a sermon on calling, uh, actually an ex- entire series on calling and vocation, which we're not going to have time to do as time has run out. And so um, I need to tell you that even though that it's muggy, it's hot, it might be somewhat uncomfortable, um, we're going to try and squeeze at least the entire first two lead-off sermons into one message today. So just because numbers are low today does not mean that you'll get half of a sermon, uh, just so that you know that, because uh, this is going to be the kind of the overarching uh, message over what's going to be all the other vocational seminars. Vocation meaning just basically what you do the other six days when you're not in church, which is pretty important. So if you'll pray with me as we get started, as we look into this passage together for the Word of God. We thank you so much, Father, for always being with us. There are times that we feel you closer than the air we breathe. And there are times that you seem farther to us, God, than the most distant star. But that is our subjective feelings. You who are, I am, are always with us. And we stand by the promises, God, that you have made to us. That never will you leave us or forsake us. You are always present, and especially where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are with them. So we consciously, together, declare in our hearts, in unity, that we've gathered in your name. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. All right, a bit of just a little bit of history for those of you um, who maybe don't remember this from way back in high school, or some of you may be in college, depending upon what your major was. This is Ptolemy. And the world, according to Ptolemy, for which most of the world had their mental conception of the way the world operated, was geocentric. And you guys, you guys all know this. It's just kind of all kind of you know high school stuff. That the Earth was at center, and the Sun revolved around the Sun. The Sun revolved around the Earth. And it wasn't until Copernicus, at some point later on, actually quite a bit later on, that people understood that the world is not at the center of all things, but that the Sun is, and that the Earth rotates and orbits around the Sun the other way around. Now, the thing is, is that in these two different schemes of thought, whether it was Copernican or Ptolemaic, pretty much you are living in a world that you experience no visible difference. Unless you're an astronomer, pretty much it looks to you like this, that you are upon the earth and the sun rises and the sun sets, which is why even thousands of years now we know full well, everybody in this room, that the earth does not revolve around the sun. Uh-huh. I knew I was going to mess that up. We all know that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. And yet, to this day, we still talk in terms of sunrise and sunset. Because the way that those two different people, the person that lived in the Copernican universe and the person that lived in the Ptolemaic universe, all lived and did their same things, which they did rearing their children, going to work every day, eking out an existence, pretty much the same. What the difference was in those two people, the one that understood the Copernican world and the one that understood the Ptolemaic world, was their imagination. And when I invoke that word imagination, I do not mean that instrument by which we can create fantasies and illusory things in our mind. When I say imagination, I am appealing to that capacity that God has given to us for us to understand, for us to image, for us to view us to see things which are outside of our immediate visibility. So that the person who lives in the Copernican world and the person that lives in the Ptolemaic world 
even though they did the same things every single day, washed their faces, went to work, ate food, did the different activities of a day, their mental conception of how the entire world around them, which they could not see, was radically different. The reason why I say this is because there is, as we read Scripture, also a biblically informed imagination. And can I say this honestly? So much of our failure to live out the Christian life in all the fullness that God intended in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit is not because of a failure of willpower or failure of discipline. It is a failure of our Christian imagination. The Bible is not just a book that tells you to do this and don't do that. And someplace in college, you kind of got this uh, notion, which is absolutely biblical and very true, that said that don't read this Bible as a book, as a list of do's and don'ts. Understand it as God's personal love letters to you. It absolutely is. The Bible is God's personal love letters to you. But there is something else in the way that the Bible has created. It is not less than personal love letters to you. It is infinitely greater. Think of your daily Bible reading in this way. It will transform your Bible reading. It will transform your Christian life. Think of your Bible reading as an immersion of your mind into how to see the world and the universe in the way that it most truly operates. For the way it will instruct, inform, and cultivate your imagination. If you let it do that, it looks something like this. At the center of the Bible is a pillar of fire called the glory of God. In the instrumental means by which the glory of God is given in the, in the Bible is that God is sovereign all over all things. All things are done in the power of the Holy Spirit and everything is dependent upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. This vertical axis is biblically aligned in the biblically informed imagination along a horizontal axis by which everything that happens between ourselves and God is never just to ourselves and for ourselves, but is always to and for other people and love to neighbors and fellow brothers and sisters and community. But to say that would be empty if we were not also joined locally and gathered in a church. That church also does not function all in a vacuum. But if you can see, can we, get this, can we knock out this light up here? At the risk of putting you all to sleep. This church does not just exist in a vacuum. It doesn't only exist on the times that we gather here on Sundays. This church has a location biblically. It it is in a location that your mind gets oriented to as you read the scriptures and let your mind immerse in your vision informed by the view of the Bible. Basically, it exists in the world. And so that the church lives out its existence by the power of the Holy Spirit under God, dependent upon Jesus for the glory of God in the midst of the world. And this is the part which I think is most difficult for us to grasp. It is the thing that I might be most desiring and most urgently want to get across in the time that I've been here. And it is the most difficult for us to grasp. There is a timeline, there is a clock that is running that along divine line. And the way it is running is that since the first coming of Christ, his death and resurrection, he has ushered in the end of the old age by which the kingdom of the world was dominating and a new world has, has been ushered. And so that this new age is the one that extends all the way into the kingdom of God and heaven 
and the fruition of all things where everything is set right in creation. Where the entire world, there is no more disease and tsunamis. The fall is undone. There is no sin or nations striving against nations. There is harmony and unity under the divine lordship of God in Jesus Christ. The thing that is so difficult, I think, to grasp for the Christian imagination in the modern mind is that this does not exist only far away in the future and far above in some remote place. The kingdom of God has begun now and is here. And the reason why that it is so difficult for us to understand that is because there is still yet so much darkness. And as I said this frequently here, there is a friction fight between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world and the rulers and powers and principalities in this present age. And the world has such an immensely difficult time in seeing this. If the church has a different, difficult view, having this as part of their Christian imagination, the world has an even much more enormous difficulty thinking that the kingdom of God is here. When they see so much disease, poverty, unrest, hatred, greed, and our biblical mandate, and this is the reason why I say that we need to restore our Christian imaginations, is that we make visible through our lives what it means that the kingdom of God is not just when we die and go there, but it is here and now already begun because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is into this world that we live in. So our ministries and our missions have a part to play in the spreading out of the kingdom of God into the world. And to that today, for one day only, because I wish it would have been a whole series, but for one day only, we're going to add to that not just missions, but vocation. And you know, okay, by now, okay, I think everyone knows. This is my, my diagram. This is my life on one sheet of paper. And the funny thing is, is that I never noticed that there was a hole, actually. Across from missions in the way that we are to evangelize the world as Jesus Christ is the Savior. And without a, from his gospel, you cannot be saved. That, that's our mission's emphasis. There is a coordinating point, which I always never knew that. I never knew what that space was there for until last week, this week. It's for vocation is to declare not only that Jesus Christ is Savior, but that Jesus Christ is Lord here in the places of your schools, in the places of your occupation. And whether you live out your vocation, the other six days of your existence that are not Sunday, whether your mind, when you get up on Monday, what you have as your mental worldview, as the picture, as you go to work, as you go to your classrooms, whether it exists... Whether you live out your vocation, what you do, your work, in the world's view, so that what you think, that what you, in just in your mental scope, as you go about your daily duties, as you take breaks at the water cooler, as you fill out expense reports, and as you do whatever it is that you do in your job, whether your mental conception, the framework in which that exists under and in, is the world's view, so that you are there primarily to make money, advance your career, to be successful, to win acclaim, fame, power, if that is what is forming and cultivating your vocation and shaping your vocation, it is radically different than when you do those same things, filling out your expense reports, completing your responsibilities, working on the computer, doing whatever it is that you do and need to do 
in the kingdom of God as a means of declaring His Lordship. And so it is so very important what you have in your mental schematic picture as you live out Monday through Saturday before you get here on Sunday and what happens when you leave. In order for us to do that, what it, to think about what it means for vocation that lives and exists in this world, I did just a quick Bible study on my computer. I looked up heavenly realms. And I looked that up on my computer and did a search for it. You only find it in Ephesians. And you find it in these different places. And it, I think it is a very, very difficult thing to understand what Paul means by heaven and what Paul means by heavenly realms. But let me give you a picture of it from Ephesians here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Heavenly realms is the place where we are blessed with every blessing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is so absolutely critical. You have got to understand this. If you look through the book of Ephesians and read that correctly, it does not mean that I have these blessings which are stored up for me to be inherited at some later point. There is an aspect of that. There is a part of that. Other verses testify to that. But here, when he's talking about that every spiritual blessing is given you in the heavenly realms, it is not for when you die. He means now. There is a sense which the heavenly realms in the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus has already come here and is not just up there and when I die. Which, this Ephesians 1.20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm. So the heavenly realms is where Jesus Christ also is seated as Lord. And God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is a major mental reconfiguration which we don't have full time for. Go back through the book of Ephesians and track this carefully. Paul does not mean that we are to rule with Christ in this way, just in some foreign heavenly existence far above and some place far in the future after we die. There is a sense in which that comes into its fruition, its culmination. That's what that whole thing is about in the diagram. But there is a sense in which it has happened now that he has already occurred. This is a past tense. He has already seated us with him as Christ has already been seated to reign and rule. The kingdom of God has already come. And so that there is this interesting way in which the heavenly realms and the earth come together. And this is an incredibly difficult and hard thing to understand and I spent quite a lot of time this weekend trying to figure it out and trying to understand what that meant, looking it up in various sources, doing a bunch of resources, just trying to figure, what do you mean by this? Because the next verse we're going to get to in a second is that there's also rulers and authorities and powers of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when I try to understand this, I, there's no way that I'm going to be able to accurately kind of, under, kind of share with you what this conception is, except for possibly to get at it in a way that's extremely imprecise by using Plato. Our mental conception, I, I wish the kids were here. Our mental conception is this, is that there is this world, this life, and then there is this next life, and the next world. There is our present existence, and then if I can just hang on, I'll get to where it is sweet 
and restful and glorious and beautiful. That's called heaven. So there's the kingdom of this world. There's a kingdom of God in heaven. There's this life and there's the next. There is the secular and the mundane and the boring and the changing the diapers and filling out reports. And there is the sweetness and the glorious of praises of God in heaven. And the biblical conception, I promise you, in Old Testament and New, is that it is not just this way. One day, yes, this world will be gone, this world will be fulfilled. But for the present age in which we dwell every single day, it is absolutely, completely intertwined. Heaven and earth. Christ, Lord, over both, actually. The sacred and the secular. The things you do to worship God and when you can sing and praise God and you're touching Him and feeling Him and when you are changing a diaper and when you are just taking a break with you know some friends eating food, there is no such sharp distinction. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world for the present time, they are. And everything I've tried to do in those graphics and spent a lot of time on in technology and all that, Plato, right here, this is our current existence. This is, I promise you, and I think you might be able to try to explain this to, to your kids, this is what theologians call inaugurated eschatology. Right here. Heaven and the kingdom of God and the reign of rule of God has begun ever since Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is so absolutely important because it was the declaration after his crucifixion that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that extends from, the, from 33 AD to the present moment, to the present time. And he has brought with him the kingdom of God and all the heavenly realities and the heavenly blessings, and they are here with us. So if, you know, I used to think this. I used to think that when we were sometimes in worship, and I experienced that just today, when we were worshiping, and I used to think, this feels a bit like heaven. And I'm slowly beginning to understand as my mind is getting increasingly biblically informed. It feels like heaven because it is heaven. Heaven has already begun. Our eternal existence has already been created since Jesus Christ's resurrection. That will take some time to sink into. And we don't have time to fulfill that today. So let me move on just a little bit to what that means. It means that we have a daily decision to make, Monday through Saturday, and on Sundays as well, but we feel it the most on Mondays through Saturday, of whether the powers and principalities and rulers of this world, in their lust, their greed, and their power grabbing for their own selfish reasons, whether these things rule over our lives, or the faith, hope, and love of Jesus rule over our lives, and which existence which we will give reign and rule to. And the reason why that that diagram is so important to me is that not only for us, it doesn't only affect our lives, it affects what is displayed to the world, to the creation, and even to this other kingdom. This is an immense verse in Ephesians 3.10. In Ephesians 3.10, it says that his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And again, that being a place here and now. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We don't have time to unpack that too much, but all I mean to say that is this. You go to school, you go to work in places that everyone there who has not seen Christ, whom Christ is not visible, 
do not love Him, who do not adore Him. They live under the authority and the lordship of the things of this world, of this present age, under all of its darkness, its sin and selfishness. And the only way that they will see something different is you, by your life, are a living declaration that these things are not Lord. And there is a king above all kings. And I live my life in his kingdom and under his reign and his rule and his lordship. I'm going to read to you a little about what happens when kingdoms come into conflict. There's a confrontation of rulers, authorities, and powers. And there's a decision to say, who is the Lord over all of the world? And these decisions get made and when kingdoms come in conflict, of which we are a part of, not just the missionaries on the part of the diagram, but every single one of us who have a vocation, who are living out the kingdom of God in this present world and its present darkness. So in this passage in Ephesians, there is an amazing verse here that says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, and for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. When you think about what you're going to do when you leave here, and tomorrow, Monday through Saturday, the other six days, there must be in your mind as it becomes increasingly biblically formed, that you have not left sacred things, you have not left the kingdom of God because you've left church. You are now entering into this place where there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of world in conflict, and you are representative of the kingdom of God. And you have a decision to make of who is Lord in your place of work, in your place of school. That word Lord immediately brings to mind two incredibly important things in the biblical imagination. The word Lord instantly would be heard by those who know the Old Testament as Adonai. And that the casual way in which the New Testament speaks of Jesus as Adonai, the Lord. Because the person who is Adonai in the Old Testament is God. And so when that word Lord is invoked, that you have to know who is Lord over your work and over your place of occupation, that word Lord instantly has a tie to the past, meaning that he is God. But that, in its New Testament housing, is in the Greek, also has another resonance. That word kurios is the word, literally, we translate it as Lord. But you cannot hear the word kurios in that time, in the churches to which Paul was writing, without thinking about one thing. That word kurios is already ringing in your mind previous to the time you ever met Jesus because in that first century world, Kaiser kurios is all over the place. Caesar is Lord. The current ruler, authority, and power is Caesar. The kingdoms of this world and its world governments are Lord. Kaiser kurios. And it is with the greatest boldness and strongest conviction, most bright imagination that all the New Testament writers affirm. Iesu Christos Kurios, which almost moves to a political statement. Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning definitively that Kaiser Caesar is not. Who do we own ultimate allegiance to and who is our Lord? Is, gets decided every single day, Monday through Saturday, in your places of work and your places of school. 
And so that when you set your mind to think, as you enter into that place, what pleases the Lord? What will be right and obedient and joyful and glorifying and worshipful to Him in the way that I conduct my duties, in the way that I live out this day in all the different duties that I have, radically reforms and informs what you're about as you conduct all your responsibilities. The best way that I can put it to you in illustration, in that diagram, when I coordinate our missionaries with all of us who have vocation, we have a right to say that to our missionaries. Absolutely. If all of our tent makers all of a sudden start getting just so engrossed in building tents, and they have a right to say to all of us here back in the States who have vocations, All you care about is your career and making money and being the best and having everybody look at you, how powerful you've become, how famous you've become, how everyone now, you're the go-to person in this industry, how you've made it so successful and now you are on TV and that's all you're gunning for. And you've completely forgotten your purpose that you are supposed to be light in the darkness. And if you won't do it, who will? These two things operate together and that is our purpose to find out what pleases the Lord. And the way that we do that is that it says, now you are the light, but now you are light in the Lord. Let me just move this actually quickly. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And, it's just, and we don't have time to, to hit that too hard. It doesn't say that you dwell in the light, you know the light. It says that you are children of the light, meaning that you yourselves are light. That, I think, is an astounding statement. You're light. You're supposed to shine. And that is who you are. That's who Christ has born you to be as he is the light and you are his children. You also are light. And this light happens this way in this fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we think and dream of these absolutely huge and amazing ways that we are supposed to be light in these great big I don't know. I think we just have these things that if it's, if it's not this big and amazing thing which gets enough notoriety that we shouldn't be doing it, that it's not important. And the way that the Bible tells us in our imagination that we are to be light in the world, in darkness, is through really simple things, to live lives of goodness, righteousness, and truth. That daily, the way that we live our lives is radically different than the way that the people live lives in the world. That we live lives that are good, that are righteous, that are true. And by so doing, and by so living these kinds of lives, that we have something to say to the world around us. So let me just go to this passage really quickly before I flip back. This passage in 1 Corinthians. Let me just read it for us really quick. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it, even if you can gain your freedom. Make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave to Christ. You were together, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, then remain with God. There remain with God. I've got to say this, that again, um, that word condition, the reason why that I think uh, NASB, uh, ESV translated as condition, NIV translates as situation, the reason why they do that is because they don't want to confuse you all, but literally, it's very simple. That word condition is the word klesis, 
And that is the exact same word that is here all over the place. That means simply called. That first word that when it says called all over there in that passage, when you were called, when you were called, it means when God called you sovereignly by his divine love and power and saved you. He called you to be with him. That's salvation. That's conversion. And in this interplay of words that we hide in the English translations by using the same exact word, Paul meant for it to have that association. This condition of where you are, your station in life, whether you are a slave or a freeman, which means wherever you are in the, in, the, in the corporate career climbing ladder, whether you're on the bottom or on the top, wherever you are, your calling, your vocation, it is a calling in the same way or a similar way, analogous way, to when God called you to be with Him. He called you into that place of work or occupation to be with Him. The primary thing you are doing in all of your jobs, no matter what it is you're doing, graphic design, teaching, engineering, whatever it is you're doing, it is not primarily to make money or be outstanding in in that career. That being outstanding is a subset of of being in that very simple way. Parathau means with God with God, to be with God and experience God there in your vocation because in the whole Plato example, it is all intertwined and God is not someplace far away but there with you in your schools and in your corporate offices. Well, we're going to go back to this verse, the, the Ephesians verse, but before we do, let me try and put an illustration on what that means and how to do that in a practical term very quickly. You know, um, as I preach here, um, I've noticed something uh, that from time to time, that as I'm preaching, as I'm preaching, occasionally, or maybe even most weeks, the bell tower goes off. You know what I'm talking about, about 4 o'clock? Uh, the bell tower goes off. And I almost take it somewhat as the kind of like divine wrap-up music, like at the Academy Awards, like, okay, it's time to kind of, you know, bring things to a close. We're not there yet, by the way. But that bell, and also it got me to start thinking about something, and, you know, just start thinking about that bell and how common it is. Because we live in an old town, but... All the, you know, all the old towns, they have this. All the old towns were designed that way. Someplace, there's church or churches in the town, and there's a bell tower. And in the bell tower, there are two things, always. Always. There is a clock and there is a cross. And the way that it was supposed to operate in every single village, vale, town, hollow, is that the highest place in, in the entire place was to be this tower, and upon it the cross, and a clock. And when the bell strikes, everyone was supposed to, and, and you know, on the hour, every single hour, 24-7, when that bell strikes, whatever you're doing, laundry, taking care of your kids, filling out a report, writing something, uh, taking an exam, uh, tending a patient, all of a sudden that bell tolls, and all of a sudden in your mind, in your visualization, if you can't see it, at least in your mind's eye, it is to go to the cross. And it is for you to say, because that clock was the only one that's being kept most accurate in you know, pre-technological uh, like, you know, times. That clock is the most accurate clock in town too. And it's for you to kind of on the hour to say, has my clock running fast? Is my clock running slow? Am I keeping time with the tower clock that upon it is the church and the people of God in Christ and the cross? That bell is to sanctify and make sacred and remind everybody that whatever they do in all the hours of their lives, that it is in the kingdom of God and for God's kingdom and for his gospel's sake. The closest I've ever come to experiencing that was at the time that I spent in Korea at Jesus Abbey. And they did the same thing. On the hour, a bell would ring out that you could hear throughout the entire Abbey. 
And so I kept on imagining, just, and I would be, sometimes I'd be talking with somebody, and all of a sudden that bell would ring, and instantly our, we would think in our hearts and minds, that's right, we are in Jesus' Abbey. We are in the place where Jesus' presence is. And if we have forgotten his presence, if we have somehow hidden his presence, we want his presence to be revealed. We recenter our lives so that what we're doing right now, at this moment, whether it's work on you know, some manual labor or whether it's our conversation, it must be in Christ with God. It is a discipline. It is a way to configure your imagination so that when you leave here, every single thing you do is still with God in Christ. This last part as we close in Ephesians. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that God, that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as uh, unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. These days are evil, meaning that the kingdom of God yet has not come in all of its fullness, it, but it has begun. And it is not for us simply just to hang on and say, well, one day Christ will come. One day he'll put an end to all my pain and sorrow. It is to say, to make the most of the time that I have in being an agent of that healing, of that redemption, even as it has begun now, it will be fulfilled in heaven. But it starts now. As we were singing that song, I will rise. I sang that today in a way different than I have ever sung it before because of these verses which I knew I was going to preach on. Not only marking myself some point in the future, decades from now, Lord willing, when I will rise, then everything is wonderful. That has happened and has begun, not completed. It's begun now. There is a hope and a strength and a healing and redemption which I have now, has begun now. But this is very important what you do with the verse preceding that says, you are light, and therefore, that is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. I always meant, I always took that verse, always, until this past week. I always took that to mean that when I'm feeling dead, when I'm feeling kind of, you know, down in the in, you know, dumps and all that, that if I can just kind of wake myself up, that Christ will shine on me. Um, pretty sure that that's a way psychologized reading which Paul would know nothing about. When he talks about people who are dead, he means dead in Christ. People who have not yet come to be born again in Jesus. People who are not yet alive to God. And so when that word says that you are light, and this word, because to wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you is not the word that comes to you. It is the word that comes through you. You are light in the midst of people's darkness who don't even know that they live in darkness. And there must be something about your life that so makes them say, I feel like I'm sleepwalking. There's something about the quality of my existence in my life which is not like yours. There is a life that is in you and it makes me feel like I'm asleep. And if I could just wake up like you, that there would be a light that would shine on me, which is Jesus Christ. This is your commission and your mandate. More important than whether you get successful, make money. It is that you are light in these simple and small ways, in goodness, righteousness, and truth, in all the places of your work. That is your arena. That is a place in which you are to work that out. And for me, the, way, the only way I can close this is that, you know, this past week, New York Medical College graduates uh, graduated. And as they graduated, they always have it at Carnegie Hall. It's packed. 
And uh, uh, because Jordan was chosen this year as the, as the student speaker, incredibly proud moment for us, uh, I got, he, he, we got box seats. And so if at Carnegie Hall, if you, you know, most, probably most of you have been there, there's a front stage, and then there's this box seat that is right up, you know, right next to the stage. I got to sit there, and I, was, I couldn't help thinking, this is the best seat I have will, or will ever have in my life at Carnegie Hall. It's free. I, I, there's no other way I think I would have gotten this seat except for Jordan was a student speaker. And so I'm sitting there, you know, with, with his dad who's also a preacher, and, you know, his mom and his nana, grandma, Lauren and Lauren's mom. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and Jordan gives the keynote message, and the Carnegie Hall is packed. And he's about 10, 15 minutes to speak, and he speaks in the parable of the talents. And the words are prophetic. I could not help but think that he is casting and broadcasting light onto all these people that are going to go, his fellow colleagues in the medical profession. He is light. And to all these people who are thinking, I just want to make money, I just want, don't want to get sued, I just want to... And he's, think, he's talking about compassion and sensitivity and making the most of your education to help people. And it is radically different than what many of them have oriented their mind and their mental configuration of what they're going to do when they get out of medical school. So he is speaking prophetically, and he is light at Carnegie Hall. And the thing is, is that you might say, that is an unsaying of everything that I said, because I just said that it's not in these great, big, grand gestures that get all this attention. It is in these small strokes of daily righteousness, goodness, goodness, righteousness, and truth. And the reason why I say that, not at all, not at all. Because the reason why Jordan is up there giving that prophetic message of light into darkness is if you look at the, the booklet, and I mean, the, the family all told me, but if you look at that, the, the commencement booklet, Jordan got two awards um, you know, that at New York Medical College. One was for academic excellence, so that the institution, the rulers, authorities, and powers recognize that this man who lives for Jesus is excellent in what he does. And he also got the Good Physician Award. I think he should have also gotten the Humility Award. Because <laughs> I you know, had no idea, you know. But the Good Physician Award, and from what I understand, the Good Physician Award is the award that's this is by your classmates that say that if me as a doctor, when I get sick, I would like to go to this guy. That's a Good Physician Award. And he got that. And I, I read the description of it. And for those who exhibit the extraordinary qualities of, of medical skill and compassion, sensitivity, sensitivity, bedside manner, those kinds of things. The reason why he was in a position to give that kind of broadcasting light, it wasn't just because one day he got he made a great speech. It's because every day for the four years that he's in med school, daily being seen by his classmates, attendees, other doctors, people in the hospital, people in school, that he exhibited and lived out small little strokes, small little things, which maybe nobody else, but it's just this few people could see here and there. Small little bits of goodness, small little bits of righteousness, small little bits of truth that exemplify everything that he could say and be given that platform for. Which to me proves the very age-old adage, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Would you pray with me as we close? I'd like for you to think now of the other six days. And the dividing wall that exists in your mental scape of what I do on Sunday is worship and what I do on the other six days is work. What I do on Sunday is with God and the other six days is with people, with things, with other things that are not God. 
the mental dividing wall that exists between Sunday is about the kingdom of God and the other six days are about the kingdom of man and power and money, that that dividing wall will be broken in Christ Jesus and that he would flood your life and that you would align your soul clocks in the way that we align body clocks, that your soul clocks would be aligned with the clock that is on the cross. That he would be the marker of your days, redeeming the time. Days are evil. God, and I pray now for every single person here in their different vocations, that they be given their wisdom and creativity, the power and the passion, to understand how small acts of goodness and righteousness and truth in the places of their occupation can transform that place from the dominion of this world to the dominion of God in Christ Jesus. From the rulership of the powers that be in this world to the rulership of the Lord who has been given the name above every name. That King Jesus would be proclaimed both verbally but also visibly, God, in their behavior, their attitudes, the way that they treat other people. I pray, Father God, now for a realignment of priorities in the Holy Spirit of what I'm here to do is not primarily to make money and advance my career. That's the secondary thing in order which serves the primary, which is to build the kingdom of God, to show Jesus, to live with God and to bring God into this place and be light in people's darkness. And we say that we understand that this world is filled with darkness. But we do not just wait for the day. We usher it in, God, and we hasten its coming by ourselves, we becoming that light. Make us, God, light as you are light. Fill us, God, and we may overflow. We pray this in Jesus' name.